Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. This week I am speaking to Vicky Spratt about her book Tenants, which looks at all of the multiple problems that tenants in the UK face in accessing and maintaining secure housing and also the strategies that tenants are using to resist the exploitative and extractive practices of landlords. Thank you, as always, to all of our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you would like to support the show on Patreon, you can sign up at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, then please do share your favorite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Now, here is a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of A World to Win is brought to you by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles perfect for listeners like you. One that you might like is From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. In this striking and insightful analysis, activist and scholar Kianga Yamata-Taylor surveys the historical and contemporary ravages of racism and the persistence of structural inequality, such as mass incarceration and black unemployment in the United States, and compellingly contextualizes the Black Lives Matter movement in a lineage of black resistance and rebellion. As Dr. Cornell West puts it, this brilliant book is the best analysis we have of the Black Lives Matter movement and the long struggle for freedom in America. Find From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £20 respectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. I am here today with Vicky Spratt and we are talking about the housing crisis. How are you doing, Vicky? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I really enjoyed your book and I will put we'll put a link in the description for um listeners to be able to go and have a read. But I just wanted to ask you to start with you write about the housing crisis um in general in your column for the independent and this book is all about the housing crisis. What do we actually mean when we talk about the housing crisis? Well, that is a great question and one I've tried to address in in the book, In Tenants. I think, as with so many of the social ills we face, shorthand, like housing crisis or cost of living, becomes normalised because, well, for, for one very good reason, journalists have word counts. I know this very well. <laughs> when you're trying to get 600 words in for print, you can't explain things at length. Um, but also I think these, these phrases enter the popular consciousness because they're snappy and they kind of embody a, a problem that we're facing. But I worry that they can help us to dissociate from what's actually going on. So when we say housing crisis, everyone knows we've got a housing crisis, whatever their experience of that is, right? Even if that's making a shit ton of money from investing in property at the expense of other people, they know that there's something going on. But what does it really mean in real terms? Well, we don't have a housing crisis per se, because a crisis implies something that was completely unavoidable, unforeseen and came along and blindsided everyone and politicians. That's not what this is. This is a systemic problem with unequal access 
to housing and an unequal distribution of housing wealth. And it has been brewing. Let's, for the purposes of this conversation, say, let's talk about the last 30 or so years since Margaret Thatcher became prime minister, deregulation of the private rented sector, introduction of right to buy in the city, the big bang, and then in the 90s, buy to let mortgages and the introduction of the buy to let landlord. And then throughout the 90s, noughties and 2010s, bar a dip around the global financial crisis, house prices that have risen far higher than Mm. wages. So this isn't a crisis because we saw it coming. Lots of people said that we were entering into a disaster that was going to see rising homelessness and increasingly unaffordable housing in this country. And indeed, that's where we are. So the charity shelter call it a housing emergency. I use the term housing crisis in my reporting because I think people know what that means. But really, we're talking about unequal access to housing and the fact that millions of people in this country are now experiencing housing stress, whether that's because they can't afford their rent, they've been evicted, or they're stuck in temporary accommodation because we don't have enough social housing. The book is a a really interesting combination of kind of like the kind of political and economic analysis you've just been describing and interviews with and discussions with and investigations with tenants in very different situations in the housing market across the UK. You spoke to lots of tenants across the country. What was the sense that you came away with about what it is like for the people on the front lines of the housing emergency in the UK? I think there is a common thread. And what I should say is over the years, I've conducted hundreds of interviews and only a handful of those are in the book and everyone I've spoken to has informed what's in tenants in some way shape or form and actually what everybody I've spoken to those for my column for the housing newsletter at the eye and for the book and and for writing I've done elsewhere they all have one thing in common which is they have experienced I suppose what Marx would call, you know, an acute sense of alienation, call it anxiety, call it Mm. depression, call it a sense of existential threat because Mm. something terrible has happened to them, which is they have not felt safe in their home. Now, there could be a number of reasons for that. They could have been evicted. They may have lost their job and fallen behind on rent. They may have had their rent put up beyond what they can afford. They may have had a verbally abusive landlord. They may have had a landlord who kept letting themselves into the property. They may have been put in really shit temporary accommodation in a converted office block on the outskirts of a city for years on end. They may have been living in social housing where there's literally feces pouring down the walls and they can't get their housing association to carry out repairs. And what all of that does is really, really break a human being into Mm. bits. People Mm. are supposed to be able to feel safe in their homes. It's the one place in the world that should be a sanctuary where you shut the door and you have control over what's going on around you. And if you are a tenant 
particularly a private renter, but also a social renter, because social housing is not in the state it should be in this country, then that autonomy is so often taken away from you. I was interested as well in how you highlighted the links between your experience of being a tenant and pre-existing social inequalities. Because like, I'm a tenant and it's not great, but it's not the worst thing in the world. I've had bad landlords, I've had good landlords, but you know, I've always had kind of recourse to be able to deal with any issues that I've had. But in your book, you show how that is not everyone's experience. And whilst, you know, we're all experiencing things like high rents, the inequalities of power that exist between a landlord and a tenant vary depending on, you know, the tenant's position, the landlord's position. So how do you, how did you find that the um, one's experience of living in the private rented sector was different based on kind of pre-existing social inequalities, be those around race, migration status, gender, whatever? Right. This is such an important point. And I think, you know, what we began by talking about, which is how the terminology can sometimes be a bit unhelpful, um, like the words housing crisis. I think the generation rent narrative of recent, the last decade or so, has probably contributed to a lack of understanding about what housing inequality looks like. So the first thing I would say is that I think fixing access to housing is the key to sorting out so many other social inequities. It's a truly intersectional issue. And we know, for instance, black people are more likely to experience homelessness. We know that house prices and rents have continued to hit historic highs that like every month right now when I'm reporting on it, I can't quite believe that I am. And I'm very worried about what might be on the horizon if it continues. But we, we know that on average, women earn less than men. Um, so if if you are a woman, that is going to hit you harder, particularly if you are, let's say, a single mother. And the Women's Budget Group have done great analysis on this and found there is not a single place in this country where a woman on an average salary can afford to rent or buy a home on her own. Wow. And then if you bring in other other factors like race, mm. that compounds so many other inequalities. And that ought to make us think about who has access to safe, secure and affordable housing and who doesn't. And of course, if you don't, nothing else in your life is going to work. It's very difficult to function, let alone be well, if you don't have a safe, secure and affordable home. So it's about who we are shutting out of having a home and how that reinforces other inequalities. I mean, and that's before we even get to migration status, which I think is a really, really, really important one to touch on. Like I've been to houses in multiple occupation in places like like Bradford, parts of Kent as well, where people are living in overcrowded, privately rented HMOs, which often are unlicensed and unsafe, which it's it's unlawful not to license an HMO, but rogue landlords do it anyway, because they know that if the person is worried about being reported because 
they don't know that they have the right to be here or they're worried that they don't have the right to be here or in the government's eyes, they don't have the right to be here. They're not going to complain, are they? So these rogue landlords are then able to exploit people because they can and they do. Mm. And I think then we have to think about what that is doing to our society where vulnerable people and like I'm going to try and give you an example of someone I met so the last time I was in Bradford I met a guy who must have been I'm gonna I'm gonna put him in his 50s or 60s and he was from Eastern Europe and he had been in Britain for years I don't know exactly how long and he had been working in a factory but he had been been paid cash in hand So one day he got sick and he couldn't work. And so often what happens in these situations is that the person who is employing, the person with shaky immigration status, will also be responsible for their housing. And it's kind of like, oh, well, you come over and we'll, we'll sort you out on both fronts. But then something goes wrong and they can't work and they just get chucked out. But then, of course, because they've been being paid cash in hand, it's very difficult to access the benefits system, even if... They're from a country where they could have quite easily got leave to remain. And there are people who are exploiting people and human trafficking and dodgy housing really do go hand in hand. And you don't have to look far to find examples of it. So you mentioned that rogue landlords. Now, whenever you put some of these problems to landlords and indeed to the government, which is largely composed of landlords, they will say, oh, yeah, well, it's just a problem of of rogue landlords. It's uh, nothing to do with the way that the system is actually structured. Presumably, you did see rogue landlords, but were these problems limited to a few bad apples? And in fact, I know the answer to this question, but I just want you to talk about why that whole narrative is wrong. Well, it's a great question, Grace. It's such an important one. So I, what I was just describing, I mean, that really is the, the very, very worst of landlord behaviour. And, and they are they are the real rogues. But I mean, I don't even like that terminology because a rogue mm. sounds like someone who is probably quite charming and, yeah, wouldn't mind going to <laughs> them. I mean, that's not who these people are. They're, they're criminals but mm. and they're exploiting people and they don't care. Um, but no, I mean... There are lots and lots of landlords who might be the kind of people your parents go to the pub with, depending on Mm. where you grew up and what kind of background you've got, who also don't treat their tenants very well. Um, And I think the government, although not explicitly, is acknowledging this with the uh, white paper on a fairer rented sector where they're going to shore up renters' rights once again and introduce what's known as the decent home standard to the private rented sector and make it legally enforceable for anyone who doesn't know. That's basically a legal requirement to make sure the home you're letting out isn't mouldy, damp, doesn't have electrical hazards. I mean, pretty basic stuff. But at the moment, that that's not something that is applied to private renting. So the government are going to bring all of this in. They're going to ban, hopefully, I mean, let's see what happens, ban Section 21 unfair no-fault evictions, which should, although it won't be enough, stop people being turfed out of their homes with just one month's notice. But I think this is is a really important thing to recognise, which is lots of people who you might think of as respectable, compassionate, perhaps people even you know who are landlords, when it comes to housing, do not treat their tenants fairly. That doesn't mean that they are doing things that are unlawful in the way that 
what I described in Bradford is unlawful. But that what they're doing is completely legal, evicting people, not being as on it with conditions as they ought to be, putting up rents. But it's still causing hardship and pain for the tenants on the receiving end of it. And the government are acknowledging this in the white paper, like the power dynamic between renters and landlords is completely off. And while I think the steps they're taking, banning Section 21, getting rid of rent hike clauses in tenancies, introducing the decent home standard, they're all steps in the right direction. I'm not sure it's going to go far enough to redress that power imbalance. And I think it should be something that causes us all to pause for thought when you think about the fact that so often the landlords who do evict people or put rent up, you know, they're not people involved in activities that are criminalised. They're not faceless international plutocrats, investment funds. They're, you know, friends, you know, maybe people who like went on the school run with, with your parents, like because they've got a couple of buy-to-lets as an investment. Um, and, you know, I've been on the receiving end of that myself. I remember after after university, I moved in with a friend from university. And I started to realise that she was from a much, much, much wealthier background than I was because she just had this flat in London, like, that she could just move in, move into. And she was like, oh, do you want to move? Wow, yeah. Yeah, right? And her parents owned it. I, I then started to realize, um, and I don't, I don't think they had a mortgage on it. And the rent at the time for that bit of London was like quite cheap. It was about five or 600 pounds a month. It was like one or 200 pounds below market rent and there was no letting agent. So I was like, oh yeah, this is great. And then a year in, her dad texted me to tell me he was putting the rent up. <laughs> and I oh was- Oh my goodness. Yeah. And of course, like, that was his investment. Maybe he saw it as his, as his pension or whatever. But, you know, it, I think that brought it home to me, right? I was like, wow, I'm a cash cow. And at the That's time... That's so crazy, yeah. At the time, I was working full time and um, and this friend was interning unpaid. And I, I think for me, that was a real turning point where I was like, wow, this is really how it works. Like, I'm I'm working in a job that I don't particularly want to do to pay rent. And that rent goes straight to my friend who is interning in a creative industry that she loves. That is absolutely crazy. And you're so right. It like completely reinforces those inequalities. It's why people can get away with offering unpaid or like extremely low paid internships. Yeah. It's wild. So I think it happens at every level, right? And money mm. makes money, as they say. And uh, I think... When it comes to housing, if you've got capital and you can invest with the housing market being the way it is right now, the potential rewards are great. And also the the freedom it affords you, right? Like that, I tell that story. Mm-hmm. It's quite a neat example of how that can work. What are the features of the law that work to kind of institutionalize this inequality of landlords against tenants? Well, as things stand, and I, as I've sort of touched on, this is in theory going to change with the Renters Reform Bill, which the government have just announced. But there is, as I've mentioned, a white paper, and then that will have to become the bill that will go through Parliament. So any changes are going to take years to come into force. So I'll talk about where we are right now. And that is thanks to a piece of legislation called the Housing Act 1988, 
which is the same age as me, which is something I always find quite amusing because I guess we think of generation rent and millennials as particularly impacted by the housing crisis. And I think, you know, there are older people who are absolutely struggling as well. And we shouldn't overlook that. But you can really pinpoint a lot of the problems we've got right now as being caused by this piece of legislation, like let's call it ground zero. And what what that piece of legislation did, the 1988 Housing Act, was effectively take away renters' rights. So prior to that, we actually um, did have a form of rent control in this country, which had been around since the First World War. It was much harder to evict people and that made it a lot easier. It rebalanced the power in favour of landlords and it introduced Section 21 evictions, which are now a leading cause of homelessness. And then it was followed in the 90s by buy-to-let mortgages and deregulation of the mortgage market in favour of investors, landlords, amateur and more professional investors. And, and I make that distinction, like someone who has one or maybe two or three properties versus someone like, um, I suppose, the most notorious example being Fergus Wilson, who before he sold them all, had tens and tens, maybe hundreds of properties. I can't remember the exact figure. And at that time, we also had the introduction of right to buy a few years earlier, which has completely decimated our country's social housing stock. We've sold off more homes than we've built, and lots of them have actually now ended up in the hands of private landlords. And this has created a bit of a perfect storm where There are now more people living in the private rented sector, so relying on private landlords, than there are in social housing. At the same time, house prices have gone through the roof, making it harder for people to buy, also pushing people into the private rented sector. Landlords' rights far outpace tenants' rights, so they're basically able to do more or less what they want, and until very Mm -hmm. recently, there really wasn't much attention given to that. So you've got like poor standards, high rents and then really really downtrodden private renters with very few rights who are scared to complain in case they get evicted. I was really pleased that you started with um, an example of tenants resistance to some of these practices through the renters union ACORN. How common is it to see renters banding together joining renters unions and really just kind of like recognising that they don't have to put up with examples of, you know, really exploitative landlordism or even things that are perfectly legal, like no-fault evictions, but which are obviously really unfair. Well, I'm pleased that you enjoyed enjoyed that opening. It felt really, really important to begin with the story of someone being evicted, but also to show how that person's, I don't want to give too many spoilers for anyone who hasn't read the book, but show how that person's community were coming together around him. And um, I'll say, you know, ACON are not the only union. There are there are lots of yeah. lots of tenants unions across the country. And I'm sure like wherever you live, there will there will I can pretty much guarantee that there will be something, not necessarily ACON, um, but I've encountered some some really, really great grassroots work in places like Colchester, for instance, and Glasgow. And Throughout the pandemic, what I was hearing, and, and to be honest, in the years in the years leading up to it, as I think sort of renters were starting to feel like they were in a pressure cooker of not having enough rights, rents going up, and and really having had enough of not being able to get help when they needed it because local councils 
are often under-resourced and so quite simply can't always provide the support. And if you are illegally evicted, I mean, I've heard so many stories of people who are actually being illegally evicted, i.e. without a Section 21 or there's another kind of eviction called a Section 8. But when they call the police, the police don't understand the legislation. So they don't realise that it's an illegal eviction and take the landlord's side. Like I spoke to a young woman in Bristol who that happened to and you know, it's very, very difficult for people to get support. And of course, cuts to legal aid, meaning that we've got like housing law deserts across the country where it's very difficult to access like a duty housing solicitor. And and in the years leading up to the pandemic, but particularly since the pandemic kicked off, I've been hearing from people who are starting up grassroots community groups or joining established unions. Often people who you wouldn't expect to be politically active. Like I'll take an example from the book, this this guy called Tony, who I think probably is a conservative voter, to be honest, although I don't want to speak for you, Tony, but we spoke quite a bit about about his political political allegiances. So I think that's fair to say. But when he was evicted for the fourth time, he joined his local renters union and now Mm -hmm. goes to their weekly get together in in Colchester and and talks to people about their rights because he realized that he didn't even know where to start when it happened and I I, you know I was hearing from Acorn that they were getting more and more people come to them for help with evictions throughout the pandemic and I think it speaks to the erosion of the support that did once exist for people you know like proper access to legal aid but I think it also speaks to a really visceral and growing sense of frustration and a desire to do something in the face of that rather than well in fact tolerating it's not an option right like when your your life is literally on the line if you're going to lose your home so you have to do something and um I think that kind of solidarity and, and the story of Anthony at the start of the book you know 30 odd people coming together to support him when he was being evicted is really, really, really important to take note of because I do think that there is a big consciousness shift happening where people are are turning to their community for support. The point you raised there about Tony and his political allegiances and those potentially changing as a result of his engagement with the tenants movement is a really interesting one. And it speaks to the fact that the Conservative Party does have a really big political problem here. Yes, with young people, but also more generally when it comes to housing. And, you know, Boris Johnson clearly knows this because he's, you know, lined up all these policy announcements saying this is what we're going to do to solve the housing crisis. Yet all they can come up with is just advocating for more right to buy. Why do you think that the Conservative Party seems so stuck on this question? Is it literally just because they are in hoc to landlords and developers and the property industry in general? Or do they just simply not know what to do to solve this crisis without doing something really radical like investing in social housing, which is obviously off the cards for a Tory government? Very interesting question. Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? Where do we start? We've got about five minutes. So (laughs) no, take as much time as you need. (laughs) Let me be brief. I mean, for what it's worth, I think Labour has a big problem too here, but we maybe don't have time to get into that. And I, and I don't think that the Labour Party, you know, in my in my experience as a housing correspondent, I, I, I'm like not clear at the moment on what their position is. 
So that that is bad. That's not because I'm not doing. I think you could say that about most policy areas at this point, and I think it's a strategic choice not to come out on anything really. Well, yeah, a bad one, but (laughs) we could probably spend the next five minutes talking about that. So I'll restrain myself. (laughs) The long and short of it with Labour is there's a lot more that they could be doing, and I think they've got a big problem which they they don't really know what to do about. um, Which is, you know, we're still a majority just nation of homeowners. And that is good for the Conservatives. But we could perhaps talk about that another time. On the Conservatives and this government, the picture is actually rather complex. So first, what I will say is, since Michael Gove became Secretary of State for Housing, they've actually done some stuff that is quite surprising and was not, frankly, not being done in the years Mm -hmm. before he took over. So the Social Housing Regulation Bill, giving social housing tenants consumer rights. That was promised after Grenfell. It's now in in motion. That is a really, really good piece of legislation. I think experts from across, you know, cross party, cross housing sector all agree. And and that's because they basically wrote it. Like this was an example Mm -hmm. of the government truly listening to not not just, you know, high paid execs at charities like Shelter, but justice for Grenfell and actually bringing them in for mm. and drafting legislation. So I'm I'll, I'll give them their dues on that. And like, I'm very, very glad that that's happening. The Renters Reform Bill, too, is a huge step forward. And it was also promised, I think it was 2019. And it's taken this long to actually become a white paper. But on balance, it is it is a huge, huge step in the right direction. Now you could be cynical and say, well, actually there are a growing number of younger people who are private renters and there are young families who are private renting and perhaps the Tories know that they need to win them over. So as much as lots of the stuff in this white paper is in my mind, the right thing to do, I think it is, it is somewhat political too, because they know that they're going to have a problem if they don't do something about private renters. And we see in elections with elections in recent years where there are high numbers of renters the tories have a problem so this could be this could be smart political maneuvering on their part but to your point about right to buy like it, of course in the in the immediate aftermath of narrowly surviving a no confidence vote by the skin of his teeth the prime minister needed to to make some big announcements to maybe not even win over voters, to be honest, just shore himself up with the MPs who wanted his head on a platter and mm. and some who, who still do. And right to buy is, is such a fascinating policy for me because it was very, very, very successful. I mean, Thatcher is remembered for giving council tenants the right to buy, the right to own housing, which the majority of British people desperately won that's what the polling shows I mean I would argue and again we probably don't have time for this if private renting wasn't such a shit show maybe home ownership and work paid properly maybe home ownership and making money out of owning a house wouldn't be so appealing but I mean that's Mm. a story for another day so so what did Boris do well he fell back on right to buy because the Tories still look back to Thatcher and they're desperate 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 to recreate her success so rather than coming up with anything new, like, oh, I don't know, like building really good quality social homes, they recycled an old policy, which probably isn't even that easy to actually make a reality, which is extending right to buy to housing association tenants. 
it was mm. really imaginative and given that we've got a huge social housing deficit with the waiting list at over a million consistently in the last few years, which means that as many people are, that are being housed and taken off the list, the list is still growing, right? It's not going down. So I, I think it was just such a reckless announcement and um, just political posturing, and, but also just shows that they don't have any new ideas. Mm. And whilst there is a lot more for us to potentially discuss there, um, we're going to have to leave it there. I would love to have you on again to talk about more of the kind of political side of housing policy, because you're right, it's such a central part of, let's say, you know, like the shift towards neoliberalism, but also the post-war consensus. And we don't seem to have a vision for what housing policy is could look like in the future. So it would be good if we had a political party that was willing to champion it. But as you said, that is a discussion for another day. So uh, thank you so much, Vicky, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really having to stop myself from carrying on. So let's definitely pick this up another time. (laughs) Totally. Totally.